Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, this episode is brought to you by my very own NLP practitioner course. I've been teaching neuro-linguistic programming, or NLP, for nearly 15 years. It is the most powerful tool for communication on the planet, and it can be yours today. For a very limited time, I'm giving away my entire NLP course workbook for free. Go to nlpwithmatt.com. All the patterns, all the tools, and the techniques of NLP in the complete course workbook, the same one that we use to teach our live certification classes, yours free. NLPwithmatt.com. Get it today. Let's get back to the show. Good morning. Good evening. Good afternoon. How are you? Welcome back to The Driven Entrepreneur. It's Matt Browning, of course, and each and every week, you know, you can always get a big old fat helping of awesome entrepreneur stories, inspiring tales, and really getting to behind the scenes of some of the people that have been doing great, great work, the innovators, the people that are creating something out of nothing. And that's you. That's why you're listening to this. And this week is no different. I have with me someone that I've been trying to connect with. We've had um, a great banter back and forth for a little while. And the stars are aligned this week. And I finally got him on the show. And it's none other than Mr. J.T. McCormick. Now, J.T. McCormick does many things. Uh, he's, of course, the president and CEO of Scribe Media, which is a publishing company. And they help people get their books published, uh, marketing the book, even writing a book from start to finish, anything that uh, an expert needs, an author needs, a would-be author needs to get out and do it. The company's worked with more than 1,500 authors. And Entrepreneur Magazine just ranked Scribe as the number one top company culture in America. And I want to talk about that. But previously, JT's also served as president of Headspring Software. He's helped grow a multi-million dollar, 100 plus person company. Um, and he's the author of his book, I Got There, How a Mixed Race Kid Overcame Racism, Poverty, and Abuse to Achieve the American Dream. So we got stories for days. Really excited to welcome him. JT, welcome to the show. Glad you made it, my brand. My man, my man, Matt. How's it going, sir? Dude, it is so good. It is so good. Now, you have been uh, kind of all over the place. We were just talking about <laughs> growing up. Um, you're living in Austin, Texas now. How's Austin? Oh man, great, greatest city in state in the in the country. I and people ask me why is that. I go well from a state perspective, we don't have state income taxes, so that's a great thing. Amen. <laughs> so you know, so many uh, so many entrepreneurs and podcast entrepreneurs have moved to Costa Rica, <laughs> you know, for the corporate tax, <laughs> and moved to Texas for the no state tax. Uh, pretty, pretty cool stuff. So, and of course, you know, we're listening to this, you know, coast to coast. So wherever you are right now, you know, some of you have state tax, some of you don't, but Austin's a good deal. Everybody's moving over there. How long have you lived there? And why did you go in the first place? Man, I've been here 12 years now. And I, I make the joke, I got here before all the big buildings. And I ended up moving here. I used to be back in the, the mortgage industry back in the day, uh, 2005, six, seven. And I moved here, and when the mortgage industry went under, I had the opportunity to move to Charlotte, North Carolina. But another great town, yeah. So, but but I said I stay, I, I stay here. I, I loved Austin, and said, hey, you know what? I'll, I'll take my chances and go down a different path. And 
lo and behold, ended up in the the uh, software industry. So yeah, that that's how I got to Austin. It's interesting to me, you know, like towns like Austin, really cool town. I, I love it, but like very few people I meet are from there. <laughs> you know, everyone everyone likes to to move there in the new Silicon Valley. Uh, but you, you know, you've you've lived in a lot of different places, and you have a really interesting growing up process. We were just talking, you know, I asked you off air how old were you, and and the reason is is based on your book. I think it's really interesting um, when you have a book with a subtitle as blatant as yours, which is you know I got how I got here or I got there, how a mixed race kid overcame racism, poverty, and abuse. Where did you grow up? And what's the earliest memory you have of that kind of mixed race abuse? Uh, or the, the, I guess the racism, I just want to jump right into that entire story. Um, tell me about your parents, what it was like growing up and kind of those early memories. Because it's very interesting. I realize I'm going to come from a different place than you. And I want to hear it from you. What was that whole experience like? Man, you know, I'm going to start with your first question. You said, what was my earliest memory of, of racism? And it, it's interesting. It didn't happen to me directly. It happened to my, my mother. So my, my father's black, my mother's white. I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. And back in the 70s, that was a big no-no. Mixed race was just not a, a good look. So one of my first memories was when... My mother and I were coming home one day and we saw all of our belongings on the curb in front of the, the projects, public housing we were living in. So we saw all our belongings on the curb. And then all of a sudden, the landlord comes running out of the house, the building manager, and he jumps in front of my mother's face. And, and you may bleep this out, but uh, he jumps in my mother's face and he says, no nigger lovers can live here. And I was five, six years old. And that was the first time I remember racism. And the damnedest thing, Matt, was black people and white people both lived in the building, but they did not want mixed race in the building. So that was my earliest memory of racism. Now, oddly enough, one of my second memories that stands out to me the, the most was standing in line for our free food stamps back in the day where, where you still got a, a handout and you had to stand in line for three, four hours to, to wait for your handout. There was an older white lady standing in front of us in line and she turned around and looked at my mother. She looked at me and then she spit in my mother's face and she called her a nigger lover. Oh my God. And yeah. And, and, and it's funny because I tell people, I, I laugh about it still and people are like, why, why is that funny? To this day, you know, I'm 48 years old now, so that was 40 years ago. I laugh because I think to myself, wait a minute, you were standing in the same free handout line as us. What makes you any better that, <laughs> you know, that you, you know, my mother had a mixed race son. But what hit me the most, man, was my mother had to stand there humiliated and wipe the spit from her face, wipe the tears from her eyes. No one came to her rescue, but she could not leave that line because she needed that free handout to feed her mixed race son. But why that memory is so powerful for me is truly it was that day that I remember saying to myself, okay, everyone's not going to like me. And from that day at eight years old, I realized that I'm not going to spend the rest of my life trying to make everybody like me because it's just not going to happen. And unfortunately for so many people, they don't learn that lesson until high school, college, and God forbid you don't learn that lesson until your first career. And if you're in high school and then you realize, oh my gosh, 
he or she doesn't like me, you, it, it shakes you to your core. Oh my God, what is it? My hair is it my eyes. What, what is it? Man, I learned that at eight years old. So I've never spent my, my life trying to make people like me. That's really interesting that, you know, ha- having those really early memories and then, you know, going into, into high school or college or kind of, you know, into the, the later years. So you didn't become, because people become things, right? And, and whatever it is we go through, whatever, if, especially if there's abuse or there's trauma, and certainly racism is, is a terrible one, but it's one, right, of many different types of abuse or traumas that kids can go through. And for me, there was a very different, right? Completely different story. But, you know, I had, there's a lot of anger and, and kind of violence and, you know, punching walls in my house and whatnot when I was growing up. And I learned to be really funny. So that was like this, this kind of the, the adaption, I call it, right? Like we all human beings adapt to situations. If you had as eight, nine, 10 years old, an adaption to seeing, quote unquote, you know, the world like this, and this is how people see you. And this is maybe how everybody is going to see you or, or, you know, you're making a choice about believing who you think you are, or what does it mean, and so forth. If you had an adaption of like, how did you handle that? What was that kind of between the age of, I don't know, say, you know, eight to 18 ish? Did you become funny? Did you, did you have moments of like bitter or anger towards it? Did you decide to do something about it? Did you lay low under a rock? And what, what was the, the adaption and survival mechanism? If there was one, you know, man, I, I've never been asked that question. I greatly appreciate it. And you're welcome. Yeah, that was the (laughs) man. I appreciate that question. I would say it was the ability to adapt to chaos and, you know, I grew up in chaos. I, my, my father was a pimp and drug dealer. My mother was an orphan. And I, you know, I was sexually uh, molested by one of my dad's prostitutes from the ages of six to eight years old. So I navigated chaos. I was in and out of juvenile three different times as a child. I, I have a GED. I don't have a, a college degree, but I navigated chaos. And my wife said this best to me maybe two years ago. She said, you were a chameleon. And I go, what do you mean? She goes, you were whatever you had to be at the time to get wherever you needed to go. And that that phrase definitely defines me. There are people, when I entered my, my professional career, there are people who thought that I had a degree. Hey, if you thought it, I ran with it. There are people who thought I had an MBA. If you thought it, I ran with it. Sure. Who are you to, who, who are you to set them right? If they believe exactly. <laughs> so you, you didn't tell them that. Yeah. And, and so there are also people who at times thought I was uh, Puerto Rican, Italian, uh, Mexican, you sure. know, so, Hey, whatever I've got to be to get wherever I wanted to go. That's, that's what I was. So I learned how to adapt to my surroundings in chaos, regardless of what it was. So you, we just kind of glossed over this when you mentioned about your parents, your mom being an orphan, your father being a pimp and a drug dealer, and going through that. I almost don't know how to form a question around this. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad you're laughing. Because, <laughs> um, you know, it almost sounds like sort of that, that mixed race racism you were talking about, you know, so much is almost the least of your concerns in a way, right? With, with, yeah. with how you're growing up and, and that poverty. Do you remember a moment when you decided and was there a decision of this is not going to be my life or I need to get out of this? And that's the first part of the question. The second part is, do you feel like it was more, if that happened, was it more of a pull or a push? Meaning, did you see somebody, you know, living the good life and go, you know what, why can't I have that and then go for it? 
or were you looking at, you know, the, the, the drug deals and, you know, and the poverty line and the food stamps and saying, I never, I got to get out of this. Was it pushing away or was it more pulling towards a better life? Uh, you know, combination, I'm going to share all three because all three are equally the things that, that kept me from going down that life. So I can't so, wait. Yeah. Number one, my father, on one of those rare occasions I was with him, he came home, he came to the house one evening and it was, man, I don't know why me and my siblings were, were awake. So I've got 23 half brothers and sisters. My dad had 23 children. And on how many mothers? I mean, since you're so open. Oh God. Uh, was it 23 or was it pretty close? The most he had by one woman was three. So like, I'm the only one by my mother. My mother just had me. Wow. Uh, so I would say out of the 23, probably safe to say 14 to 16 different women. Okay. Yeah. Um, that, that's the most unique family situation. <laughs> I think I've ever I mean, I, encountered. I don't know that I would call it family, man, but it's definitely a unique situation. <laughs> unique, unique bloodline. Let's put it that yes. way. That's for sure. Okay. I'm sorry. Go on. No, no. So, so one of these occasions he had me and a few of my siblings and he came home and it was like one in the morning. I don't even know why we were still awake, but I, I, man, I so remember this. He leaned on this, this bookshelf and he looks at me and my, my brothers and he says to us, don't ever end up like me. Don't ever be like me. That was his exact words. And I, all I remembered at the time was, okay, my dad's a pimp. My dad's a drug dealer. My dad doesn't follow through. He doesn't pick me up when he says he's going to. I've watched my dad uh, abuse women. And so, okay, everything he said, don't be him. Those were the things that all I knew was, okay, this must be what he's talking about. So it became, don't be that. And so that's one. Another one is my third time in juvenile when I'm getting ready to leave. The corrections officer, this is my, after my third time in this place, the corrections officer. How old are you up, at this point? Oh man, um, 13, 14 years old. Okay. And he pulls me over and, and, and stands there and he looks at me and he says, son, if you ever come back here again, you're going to man prison. Now, Matt, I'm 48 years old, and man, the term man prison still doesn't sound good to me. I don't know what goes on in man prison. I do not want to know what goes on in man prison. <laughs> oh so I never that scares went me, to, man. Exactly. So I never went to man prison, and I, and I never went back to juvenile. And so that was the, the third one that was uh, very powerful for me. And then the, the last one was watching my mother... Uh, use food stamps and how humiliating it was. You know, we, our society's made it a little more convenient to be on food stamps now to be on welfare. Now you get this debit card looking thing. So when you swipe your card, no one knows if you're swiping an Amex black card, or if you're swiping a welfare right, card. Right, right. As much like, you know, only the, the grocery clerk knows what's happening. Right. You don't have that scorn of the people in front of you, exactly. behind you. Exactly. See, I was, when I was a kid, you had shame. And, and so, you know, that shame was powerful for me. You know, pe people can say, oh, well, that's wrong. That's not right. You shouldn't shame people. Whatever you want to say, it benefited me because I did not want that, that shame. And then I'll, I'll throw a, a bonus one here uh, to you as well. The, the fourth one that I would say really held an, uh, an impact on me was my dad, when I was 10 years old, 
we were living in Houston, Texas, and I don't know if he even if he ever knew he had this impact on me, he drove me through one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in the country it's called River Oaks in Houston, Texas. And it was the first time I had ever seen five, 10, $25 million homes that one family lived in. These homes were bigger than the public housing units that, that I lived in. And I remember saying to myself, okay, I want one of those. So he showed me possibility because I did not know something like that even existed. So those were the four most um, beneficial uh, examples that I could give you, beneficial and influential uh, things that happened to me that that led me down a different path. Yeah, big big emotional standouts. And it sounds like as I'm hearing them, you know, I'm not you, but if I was to kind of categorize them on my mind, the first three were really, it sounded like more pushing away. It was like, that was something that was negative, something you're like, I want to avoid this. My dad says, don't be like me. Um, all of that, you know, your mom in line. But the last one is that pull of, wait a yeah. second, there is a possibility. And so at, at what point did you, did you get your first, because I know at some point you had, like, you know, you, you get out and you start your first career cleaning toilets And you said, I'm going to do something on my own. How old are you when you first start kind of making your own money, no matter what the amount was? And, and at that moment, was it just to survive or did you have that glimmer of hope of, Hey, I'm going to go from toilets to sinks and from sinks to, you know, I'm going to work my way up and I'm going to get out of this. Was that a hopeful thing or was that a survival thing? Tell me a little bit about kind of that first making money for yourself. Oh man, Matt, I got Matt, I gotta give you some credit. You 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 bring the questions. So I'm, I'm so, just curious. I've never I, I don't think I've actually <laughs> met someone as as intricate as you, my friend. So so one, I've got to to pause there and preface this with you because you said hope and hopeful twice. And I, I've got to put this out there, man. I eliminated three words from my vocabulary as a kid: hope, wish, and luck. And the reason being is when I was a kid and I would wish there was something to eat when I got home, it never produced anything. So I stopped wishing a long time ago. And and I stand by this so, uh, I'm so passionate about this. I've got four children. And when we have their birthday parties and you know, you have the cake and the candles, I never allow my kids to, or anybody who's at the party to say, make a wish. No, we don't make wishes in, in our house. We make a goal. So when you blow out those candles, you make a goal because wishing does not produce anything. Um, so I eliminated wish. Hope, when I would hope my dad would pick me up, he never showed up. When I would hope there was food in the refrigerator, didn't produce anything. So I, I stopped hoping a long time ago. And, and I'm going to go into that a little more as well. I got a friend of mine who's a pastor and he goes, JT, man, I, I, you know, in my sermon, I preach hope, you know, every Sunday. He said, last Sunday, I said it 16 times. And I said to him, I said, hey, do you want me to hope there's a God or do you want me to believe there's a God? And he, he kind of stopped in his tracks like, wow, I've never considered it that way. I said, Hope doesn't do anything for me. Belief forces execution. So I choose to believe in the things that I want to make happen. And then the last one, luck, uh, just excuse my language, just a, just a completely bullshit term. When someone says the, the $50 million lottery winner is lucky, no, he or she wasn't. They bought a ticket. They did something. They took execution. So uh, I, I don't do hope. Uh, I will say this. Now, back to your question. When I first started making my own money, 
it was out of survival. My mother told me after I got my GED, she said, great, you've got two weeks to find a job. I went and found a job at the first place I could. It was cleaning toilets. And I got to credit my dad for this. When I was cleaning those toilets, it hit me that my dad once told me, whatever you do in life, be the best at it. And he said, if you're going to sweep streets for a living, living, be the best street sweeper in the world. That was his example. And your dad, the and pimp, told you this advice. Say again? Your dad, the pimp, yes, gave you this advice. Was, was, my dad, the pimp, gave me that advice. And so I made, you know, I set out to have the cleanest toilets in all of San Antonio, all of Texas. And since then, everything I do, I strive to be the very best that I can be at what whatever I'm doing. Husband, father, CEO, uh, whatever it is, I, I strive to be the, the best that I can be. So uh, the first, my first money was being made out of survival because my mom told me I had two weeks to find a job wow. or to get out. <laughs> wow. So you start working your way up and this is where I, I think it starts to get pretty interesting. Um, you know, I, I study motivational drives. I think that's part of why I'm asking these types of questions. You know, my last book, The Firebox Principle is about the drives that fuel entrepreneurs. And I'm wondering, you know, from the story, what was the major drive for you to say, I'm going to go like, how, how long was it from cleaning toilets to becoming a president of your first company? Ooh, wow. There was, so you probably had a few ups and downs along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, between the time that I was cleaning toilets and before I became the president of, of the software company, man, I had made a million dollars, lost it all, went negative, broke, had to borrow money from my dad and, and best well, friend. Was that in real estate and mortgage or was that a combination of different places? Combination of real estate, mortgage and, and investing in stocks and, and do, getting away from what got me there. So the very thing that I did to make all my money, which was in investing in stocks, um, I strayed the path and I started investing in uh, flip homes and, and things of that nature. Next thing I know, the credit industry, the, the mortgage industry changed, it shifted. So all my flip money was gone from flipping houses. But then I started chasing money on, with my stock investments and then that dried up because the market turned and you should never chase money in investments. And so at the end of the day, I got laid off from my job because uh, Wachovia went under. Who, who Wachovia I was Bank, I remember. Yeah, yeah. So I was uh, here uh, working in the mortgage industry in Wachovia and, you know, greed uh, on so many fronts for people, uh, it took me under. And so I, I was back at zero I call it negative broke because like I said, I had to borrow money from my, my stepdad and my best friend to pay my rent. When you say greed took you under, you said that word a few times. So I, it sounds like you're certain that was the driving force. When you thought about going after the money, was it, what was there, when things start going down, was it fear of becoming broke again? Was it the, the greed of like, man, I just want another million, another hundred thousand. I just, you know, I want to get to the next level. What was it about that greed, as you called it, like in the subconscious side? What what was the real driving force? Maybe greed's not the the best word. I would say it was a a, a greed arrogance type thing. I I had made this money in the stock market and thought that you know oh, why well, I, I can make money anywhere. And then I got into flip homes, and the worst thing that happened was 
uh, I took 15,000 and, and turned it into 35 to 50,000 and thought, oh, well, well, you know, I can do it all. And that wasn't the case at all. So lost, lost all my money. So it was a, a combination of greed and arrogance. Don't, don't go into a business that you know nothing about and throw some dollars at it, get a good return. And then all of a sudden you're like, it, it goes back to that phrase. If it's, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> and yeah, so, you know, there's a phenomenal story from the the book, The Richest Man in Babylon, where that's really one of the major principles. And I certainly didn't pay attention to it when I read the book as a young man. But, you know, in the story, the character doesn't listen to his mentor. He goes out to a far east land, buys a bunch of gems because he made some money here. And now he's starting to get some money. So he decides to invest in this whole new thing. And he has no idea about precious uh, gems. He comes back and the whole thing was a fraud and he lost his entire fortune. But the moral was, I'm, I'm jumping into something I know nothing about. Just because you started making money, why should you open a restaurant if you don't know anything about it? So you crash. W tell me about, I'm sure you have a story for this because you're a story guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when you lose it all, and we're probably doing the same thing. You know, I, I, was, I went from living in the house on the hill to my friend's trailer in his driveway in 2008, 2009. Um, I lost over $5 million in property during that whole crash, oh. whatever it was. Um, I was hurting and I was probably along the same side as you. Where, how, how bad did it get? And what was the moment, if there was a moment, when you decided, you know what, I can make a change for this? Because you said you make your own luck. Um, you don't believe in hope. You don't believe in wishing. So how did you turn that around from then afterwards? So for, for me, Matt, I, I will still stand by this to this day. Arguably one of the best things that ever happened to me, because when I went broke and you have no money, you have to look in the mirror and say to yourself, okay, when you had money, you were this person. Now you don't have money. You're still this person. Now, who do you want to be going forward? Unfortunately for me, this person was not a nice person. My character was shot. I, I could not hold a relationship. I was a horrible uh, person in, in the relationships that I, that I had with, with women. And so I had an out loud conversation with myself in the mirror. And I said, okay, out loud, you know, who do you want to be going forward? When you had this money, you were this person. But when you're broke, you're still the same person. So money comes and goes. But who do you want to be? What do you want your character to, to represent? And from that day forward, it became a mission to, for me to focus on my character first. Who do I want to be? And it didn't change overnight. You know, I still made some mistakes, still had some learning to do, some growth. And, but I was hell-bent on becoming a better person and not just making a lot more money. Now, second to that, I also made the commitment that, okay, going forward, I'm not going to buy anything new, no, no new underwear, no new uh, t-shirt, socks, nothing. And every dime that I have, I'm going to invest into the market because one thing that I did learn was, yes, the first million is the hardest, but once you do it, then you understand how you can do it again. And the absolute fortune and blessing that, that I had was, I can't imagine being born into a family of wealth and then going broke because you know nothing about being broke. I made money and then had to go back to being broke. Well, the beauty of this was 
I already knew what it was like to be broke. So I could navigate broke. I never wanted to go back there, but I just gave broke a hug. I said, hey, broke, good to see you again. Didn't know we would run into each other, but I, I'm just passing by. But you're not scared of it. You're not terrified of it. I'm not scared of it. Right. So many people are scared of of this kind of fantasy of poverty, meaning, you know, it's like, well, what if I lose everything? I remember the day I I, I was late on my first mortgage payment ever. And it was a hard thing to look forward to, right? Because my entire life I had made it work. And then I was looking at, you know what? I need to short sale this house and I need to not make this payment. But in my head, it was all this, what is it going to mean? And I'm visualizing myself living in the gutter and like and everything is going to change. And then the next day kind of life went on, you know? Yeah. And a few months later, sure, I'm living in my buddy's trailer, but I still had a bed. I'm still eating food. Things kind of worked. From this point then for you, um, you don't, you're not scared of broke anymore. You've been there. You've done that. Was your mentality still, okay, I'll go here. It's fine. It's a, it's my friend. I've been there. I've done that, but I'm going to get myself the heck out of this again as quickly as possible. How did you navigate changing that attitude? It sounds like you kind of had an attitude of thriving. I want to start living the good life. I've been broke. So now I want to enjoy life as you started making money, but then you lose it all again. And or I guess you lose it all for the first time, really. And then you started talking about not buying new things, kind of having an attitude of prudence and an attitude of, of uh, invest it all and be really smart with things. Was that a, a conscious strategy you made of like, I need to do things differently? And tell me about that. Totally. Uh, very, very different strategy. It, it was be, be very, as you said, prudent on investing every dime not being sloppy with my money, but also learning, you know, just focusing. All I did was work, work out, and study. That was it. I had no relationships, work, work out, study. That was it. And, and in, invest in, in, in my money. When I say study, meaning study investments, business, um, growth, scale, things of that nature. So that's all, all that I, I did. And again, work on myself. How am I going to be in relationships? What type of character do, do I want to have? And it, it was a hard thing. I had to look at myself in the mirror and admit out loud, wow, you're a lot like your dad. Your dad wasn't always a good person. Your dad didn't always have a, a good character. And you've got a lot of his traits. And that was hard to say out loud because I had spent so much of my life uh, angry uh, at my dad for how he was. And then here I was uh, a lot like him. So that that was very hard to to get away from and be very conscious of not becoming that person or not staying that person. Wow. So we're talking about JT McCormick, if you're just joining us towards the end of the show here, the son of a pimp and uh, overcoming and achieving the American dream. His book is I Got There, How a Mixed Race Kid Overcame Racism, Poverty and Abuse to Achieve the American Dream. You can get that on Amazon, wherever books are sold. If you're getting this show on demand, we're on all podcast platforms, of course, iTunes, iHeart, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. We'll have show notes with a link right to his book so you can grab that there. I got there. So JT, one of the things that I, we left off and we kind of went on a little tangent earlier was, tell me about getting kind of the rise to, I don't know, I guess prominence. You know, you started getting it back again. You started working again after the real estate crash after 2008, 2009. Tell me about how did, what was that like when you finally landed? And I don't know if that's the right term. If you just, you know, you, you moved into a, a seat of president, was this a company that you founded? Were you part of the early stages or is it something that you worked your way into 
and got appointed in this position. Tell me about that kind of rise of, of prominence that you finally achieved for the first time. Man, I'll, I'll give you give you the quick, quick story. So I ended up getting a job with a company called Insperity and what they do, it's a, it's a PEO company and they sell benefits, uh, payroll, workers comp, HR, they, they sell that type of thing. So for two years, and, and I didn't know anything about that, but I did know how to sell. So for two years, I would go out and I would sell the service. Well, I was trying to close this gentleman that owned a software company. And it took me 17 months to, to close him. But I just followed up, followed up, followed up. 30 days after I closed him, he calls me and he goes, hey, what are your thoughts on coming to work for me? And I said, man, you're in software. I was like 38 years old at the time, uh, maybe 37. And I said, ah, that's a young man's game. I know nothing about software. And he said, yeah, but you know how to sell and you know how to follow up. So I ended up joining the company. Uh, in sales. There were 13 of us in the company. And I used to make my sales calls from a storage closet sitting on a fold out metal chair. Fast forward two years, two and a half years later, I became the president uh, of the company. And we grew the company. And keep in mind, man, I was surrounded by some brilliant software engineers. So it, it made my life uh, a little bit easier as well. So uh, we ended up taking that company from 13 people making calls out of a storage closet to uh, offices in Austin, Houston, Dallas, and Monterey, Mexico, and grew the company to well over 100 people with, within a five-year time frame of, of when I joined. So, uh, But again, I say this to so many people like, oh my God, how, how'd you do that? I didn't. I was surrounded by incredibly talented people. And that's the key for me in leadership. I live by three leadership rules. One, surround the company with people far smarter than yourself. Two, surround yourself with people far smarter than yourself. And then three, repeat rules one and two. That's that's my leadership strategy. So uh, <laughs> it sounds like something we could all we could all get around because man, if I'm the smartest person in the room, it is not the most brilliant room there ever man, was. You better run. <laughs> Yeah, I don't I, I've never understood the people who want to be the smartest person in the room. I don't want to be the smartest person in the room ever. And so I, I have no tie to uh, titles and, and three letters after your name. But so, you know, software company was great. How I got to the publishing company is my what five years into at the at the software company, I was traveling a lot. And at that point, I had two kids. I have four now. But I, I remember thinking to myself, wow, if something happened to me, my children would not know where I come from. So I set out on this mission to do a book. I got introduced to the two co-founders of Scribe. Their company was about 13 months old at the time. They came over to my office. I met with them, Tucker and Zach. They came over. And at the end of the meeting, uh, Tucker says, wow, man, you've built a great company here. And I said, man, I didn't build anything. This was a lot of people who were involved in building this. And he looked at me intrigued uh, because I didn't take the credit. And I'm just not a credit guy because I realized it's never one person. And so he says to me, will you give us feedback on our process as you go through it to do your book? I said, yeah, why not? Uh, fast forward, short story, I, I would give them feedback back and forth. Then they ask if I'd be an advisor for the company. Then they'd ask if I'd come to their executive meeting. And then we had a meeting at Starbucks and Zach and Tucker said, hey, if we give you uh, equity in the company, 
what are your thoughts on being the CEO of the company? So woke up one day uh, and was the president and CEO of a publishing company. Now, here's the irony to this, Matt. I was the president of a software company. And to this day, I, I can't write code. I can't tell you .NET from connect the dots. And I'm now the president and CEO of a publishing company. And I can't tell you an adverb from an adjective and I damn sure can't spell. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk about the one of the least uh, uh, relevant skills in publishing books. Tell me if I'm wrong, is, is being able to have right the good grammar, the, the, the well grammar. I don't know how to, yeah, whatever. Yep, right? <laughs> to totally. And, and you know, and I, I tell people that the ironing behind those two things for me, one, I always say God bless America because this is the country that, that something like that can actually happen. That's right. But I'm very proud of the fact that it's never the, the goal is to make sure you surround the company with people far smarter than yourself. You know, I, I received the question all the time, JT, how did you all uh, become number one company culture in America? And I, I say to people, number one, you put people first. It, it's there. If you're in leadership in, in our company, that means nothing more than you have the greatest responsibility to support those individuals that you serve. That's it. I don't care about your title. Uh, we don't have direct reports. Like, you know, who do you report to? No, the way we phrase it is, who's your direct support? So if you're in leadership, you're nothing more than a support system. That's it. That's great. So you have people leadership, not title leadership. And exactly. And responsible to help people, to lift them up, to build them, to encourage them. And that's leadership, man. Like, I, I absolutely yes. love that. It sounds like, too, just looking from the, the website, because you can also guys check out scribemedia.com. And that's the uh, JT's current company. He's the president and CEO of. Scribe Media helps people write their book, publish their book, and everything from start to finish. Um, you know, it looks like you also have kind of a fun culture. Oh, definitely. And is, is that just, do you, do you just infuse personality where you can? Do you just allow freedoms? Or is there anything that you really intentionally create? You know, do you have like nap zones and all that kind of stuff? Or how do you guys create the fun kind of quirky culture? You know, it's, it's interesting. We, what's created the fun is our principles and values. They're, they're, we have a public-facing doc of our principles and values. And, and here's another piece of our culture. I've always thought this was intriguing. When most people go to work for a company, they don't know the company's principles and values until you start because you start and then you see them on the wall or they give them to you in onboarding. Our thought is why would we not make our principles and values public? Because we want you to know who we are before you get here because you may not want to work with us. You may not look at our principles and values and say, ah, I don't align with that. Great. Good for you. Good for us. So the culture itself is what keeps it fun, vibrant. We live by those principles. We live by those values. Uh, we don't, we don't do the, the BS um, keg in the, in the corner and, and foosball tables. Right, right. You know what we, matter of fact, we're proud of this. We're five years old. Uh, we have no outside capital. So there's no VC, no private yep. equity money, and we're profitable. And I tell people, if you hear that, we're actually the real unicorns, not this bullshit billion dollar valuation where companies are not profitable and they're all they're focused on our top line revenue and subscribers. I don't understand that mentality. And it, it's just a recipe, in my opinion, a recipe for disaster. It absolutely is. I mean, 
I think one of my favorite examples of that is Howard Schultz, you know, CEO and founder of Starbucks. He he wrote in one of his books when Starbucks was making a massive dive and then turn. The biggest problem was they were expanding, seeming like they were doing well. They were putting, you know, seven or eight new stores every single day were opening, but they weren't profitable. So the stockholders were happy because there was expansion. But he had, you know, they stopped everything and said, wait a second, this isn't a smart, like, this isn't sustainable. This is stupid. We're yeah. expanding because our stock goes up, but we're actually losing money the more we expand. So they changed everything. I love that you guys at Scribe ha- have exactly that, um, that you're, you're staying with it five years in, you're just steady, slowly, but yet, I mean, just crushing it. Um, I love that. So check out, you know, again, oh, it's, it's scribewriting.com. I apologize. Earlier I said Scribe media scribewriting.com and you can check that out um jt thank you so much man i know we're, we're a little over time i gotta let you get going here um but i hope everyone's been enjoying this again you can check out jt's book on amazon anywhere books are sold uh it is i got there how a mixed race kid overcame racism poverty and abuse to achieve the american dream jt you're an inspiration my friend uh, as we wind down here kind of a final question and this is you know one I ask a lot and might be a standard question, but I really genuinely mean it. If you could change anything about your upbringing, anything at all, what would you change or would you leave everything the same? Um, the things there, there's two things I would change and none of them involve me. I would change the fact that my mother had to struggle so much in raising me the times where she only had $2 to get through the week, the times where she couldn't feed her, her child, the times that she had to be humiliated. Uh, I, I would change how hard it was for her to raise me. Uh, and then the second one, I had three siblings that we were left together. They were my half brothers and sisters, but we got left in a house for three weeks and uh, we, no one was there for us and we, we just got left. And I ended up being reunited with my mother in Texas, but my three half brothers and sisters went through hell and they got separated and went into foster care. Uh, they lived in abandoned homes for a while. They, they put their food in trash cans in the snow to try to keep it warm. Uh, they went through absolute hell. And so the two things that I would change would not be for me. What I went through, I wouldn't change a thing. The, the sexual molestation, uh, what I've seen as a, as a child, what I went through, I would not change any of it because so much of it, I look back and I choose to find the positives of the things that I went through. I choose not to be a victim. I choose not to let those things hang over my head, but I choose to find how can I find a positive in some of those negative situations that I was in. Chaos is the greatest one for me. Business is very easy for me in some ways because it's structured, it's consistent, and I don't come from a, a structured and consistent background. So business is very peaceful for me. It's very therapeutic. And at times, like I said, it's easy because it's just structured and consistent. So that I know that was a long answer, but that was my answer. Well, it was a really inspiring answer as well, JT. Um, you know, I, I think you, you said it best is, you know, anything can happen to you, but you don't choose to be a victim. And I hope everyone listening right now, you don't choose that. You can choose your destiny. You can choose what you can't choose everything that happens to you, but you can choose what you do with it. Um, and I think JT McCormick, my guest today is one of the best examples of that, of someone who really created a life that 
for all intents and purposes, he shouldn't have been able to have. And you have it today and you're still growing and still doing everything you do. JT, thank you so much for coming on the show. I sure appreciate you. My man, Matt, thank you for having me, sir. Always humbled and flattered that that people still want to actually hear what I have to say. (laughs) So true. So true. Well, guys, that's the show this week. We went a little bit longer than usual. And uh, man, oh man, I'm glad we did because this is something that what a story and how important is that? So remember, you know, follow JT. He's at LinkedIn, does all his work on LinkedIn and connections. You can get him at JT McCormick at LinkedIn. Um, and of course, you check out Scribe Media, the company that he's the president and CEO for to get your book done. And check out jtmccormick.com. That's his main site. You can book JT as a speaker, uh, connect with him. There's even a form that goes right to him to say hi and hello. Or if you want to share a message or you want to say something spoke to you about this, please reach out at jtmccormick.com. And then grab his book, I Got There, How a Mixed Race Kid Overcame Racism, Poverty, and Abuse to Achieve the American Dream on Amazon. Thanks for listening. Love you guys. We're for you. We, we, I hope that you're building your business, you're building your life. And I want to encourage you every step of the way. Get out this week and crush it. And I'll see you next week with another awesome interview. Bye for now. <laughs>